Let's take a Bibles this evening and turn to First Timothy. <clears throat> First Timothy and chapter one. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter one and let's <clears throat> begin reading from verse three. <clears throat> says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than God the edifying which is in faith, so do. And the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, and for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, <clears throat> which was committed to my trust. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for the opportunity to be here this evening. Lord, we pray as we <clears throat> come around your word that you would uh, teach us and instruct us through your word this evening. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would empower me now through the Spirit. You give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would uh, just challenge us, that you meet us each where we're at, and that, Lord, we'd be blessed and refreshed by your word this evening. We leave singing your praises and giving all glory and honor unto your name. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember, we started looking at <clears throat> the main body of uh, Paul's letter to young Timothy uh, last time there in verse 3 and following. And we saw that he begins by reminding uh, Timothy of the reason why he had left him there at Ephesus. It says there in verse 3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so Paul had besought or um, pleaded with Timothy to remain there at Ephesus. And the reason was because there was these false teachers who had entered into the local church and they were now endangering uh, the body of believers. And so Timothy was commissioned by Paul uh, to remain there and to take a stand against these false teachers, take a stand for the truth. And he was instructed to command them to stop teaching their false doctrine and also to stop giving heed to endless uh, fables and genealogies. It says there in verse 4, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than God the edifying, which is in faith, so do. You see, these men were distracted by these myths, these fables, speculations, 
about uh, Old Testament people. You know, these speculations added nothing to their faith, and in fact, it was leading them into false doctrine. So Timothy had been left behind to uh, turn the people back to the truth. And the end goal, of course, of that commission was that the people might be built up, they might be, there might be spiritual growth in the life of the believers, and indeed, it would lead to love, Christian love, as it says there in verse 5. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. It's about how the end goal was this love, born out of this pure heart, a good conscience and unfeigned, real faith. Indeed, only, those things can only be produced by the truth, by sound doctrine. But the false teachers had lost sight of that. They had missed the mark and they had ended up at vain jangling, he says in verse 6 which have, some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, neither understanding what they say, nor whereof they affirm. They ended up at this vain jangling, this empty religion. It was empty, it was dead. And they were leading their followers down these same dead-end streets. And he says in verse, four, verse 7 that the reason why they missed the mark of truth, and they ended up here, is because they desired to be teachers of the law. They desired to teach when they themselves had not been taught. And so they didn't understand what they were teaching. They didn't understand the law, didn't understand how to apply it, and so they ended up at false doctrine, ended up at this vain jangling. They swerved, they missed the mark. And at the mention of this failure on the part of the false teachers to understand and handle the law correctly... Paul now addresses the law and he addresses the proper use of the law. And so he begins, first of all, here this evening by declaring the nature of the law. The nature of the law. Look there in verse 8 with me. It says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. You know, Paul didn't want anyone to think that uh, because he criticized these false teachers, he didn't want anyone to think that the law itself was the problem. You know, that he was against the law. You know, the false teachers, they had mishandled the law, but that didn't make the law itself evil. That didn't make the law itself the problem. It didn't mean the law was to be ignored. Far from it, Paul here describes the law. He says, by nature, the law is good. Okay, verse 8, but we know that the law is Good. You see, the failure of the, the false teachers had nothing to do with the law itself. It wasn't the problem. It is by, by very nature, the law is good. And the reason it's good, of course, is because of who it comes from. The Lord God. Now, the word translated good here is the Greek word kalos. And it's a word that speaks of outward attractiveness and inward worth. And so it declares to us both the beauty of the law and also the excellence of the law. And when we consider that God is the author of the law, we understand that it is impossible for anything else to be true. It's impossible for anything to be true other than that the law is good, that it is beautiful, that it is excellent. Because the law itself reflects the very character of God. Commentator Gill wrote this, he said, The moral law must needs be good, since the author of it is God, who is only good, 
and nothing but good can come from him. The law, strictly moral, is a copy of his nature, transcribed out of himself, as well as with his own hands, and is a declaration of his will, and is stamped with his authority, and therefore must be good. Indeed, it's impossible for the law to be anything but good, isn't it? It's impossible. It reflects the, the very holiness of God, and therefore the law is perfect, and it is morally excellent. You know, Paul expressed this same truth in his letter to the Romans. Just turn over there. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7. Paul likes to repeat himself in his, his letters. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7, he wrote very similar words. Romans 7 verse 7. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. They had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taken occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Uh, for, for without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be under death. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Now the Apostle Paul there, in verse 7, he asks the question, he says, Is the, Lord, sorry, is the law sin? And his immediate and emphatic answer there is, God forbid. Absolutely not. You see, the law of God is not sin, it is not evil. And it cannot possibly lead someone into sin because the law is of God. And then in verse 12 there, he, he declares emphatically, he says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. It's the same idea as he says in First Timothy, isn't it? It's almost the exact same idea, just worded a bit more lengthy. Uh, it's the same idea here. God's law is holy, it is just, it is good, it is excellent, pure. But it must be used lawfully. And that's what Paul says here at the end of verse 8. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> he says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. You know, it's almost like this is a clarifying statement, isn't it? He has this clarifying statement at the end. He says, The law is good if a man use it lawfully. You see, it's true the law itself is good. It's, it's a reflection of the very nature of God. But the law can be mishandled by sinful men. The law can be mishandled by man and result in evil. And so the law itself must be used lawfully to achieve its good. Now the word lawfully here speaks of it being used in accordance with its original spirit and intention. And so it's the idea that it must be used and applied in the way that God intended it to be. In the way that God intended. And this, of course, is where the false teachers' problem arose. You see, they desired to be teachers of the law, but they had no understanding of how it should be used, and therefore no understanding of how it should be applied. And of course, the result is that they used the law unlawfully. And for this reason, Paul now goes on to explain to us the lawful use of the law. He's explained to us that the nature of the law is good if we use it lawfully. And now secondly, he tells us what that lawful use is. 
the lawful use of the law. Look there in verse 9 with me. He says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul now begins to tell us what the lawful use of God's law is. And he begins verse 9 with the statement there, he says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. You know, this was the point at which the false teachers got it wrong. This is what they forgot or didn't understand. The law of God was not made or laid against, that's what that word means there, not laid against a righteous man. Now we can see that this is true in a, a general sense for all laws. You know, laws are not brought in because men are good. Laws are brought in because men are thoughtless, they are selfish, they're criminal, and so laws are brought in to make sure we do the right thing by our fellow man. But you know, the law isn't against someone who is an upright citizen. You know, an upright citizen who is treating his fellow man the right way doesn't need a law to tell him how to behave. Indeed, the law doesn't make that person into an upright citizen. In that sense, they have no need of the law. It wasn't made for them. You know, for the upright, the law simply protects them, doesn't it? You know, the law protects them from those who would break the law. And indeed, it warns them of the consequences if they themselves break the law. But the law is given or is laid against the unrighteous, as we'll see. It's not laid against the righteous. You see, the point is that laws are, are known by all, but they're laid against, they're brought against those who are disobedient, not those who obey. And so we can see that Paul's statement here, the law is not made for a righteous man, that's true in a general sense of all laws. But Paul isn't speaking about the laws of men here. He's not talking about the laws of men. The context here is the false teacher's mishandling of the law of God. And so the righteous man here must be understood in a biblical sense. That's how we need to understand this, this righteous man here. Now the word of God makes it very clear that there are none righteous. No, not one. Isn't that Romans 3 verse 10? There are none righteous. No, not one. And so this is the state of all mankind without Christ. We are unrighteous before God. And so in that sense, the law was given or is against all mankind, isn't it? Because we're all unrighteous before God. Indeed, the only way that we can be righteous is through faith in the finished work of Christ there on the cross. Romans 5 verse 19 tells us that through Christ many are made righteous. Let's just turn there, Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 19 says, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Because the one talked about there is Lord Jesus Christ. By the obedience of Christ, what he did there on the cross, many are made righteous. 
when we place our faith and trust in him and his finished work there on the cross that day, his righteousness is imputed unto us. It's put to our accounts. And we are declared righteous before God, declared not guilty, justified. You see, that is the only way that someone can be righteous before God. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand in his righteousness. And so Paul here, when he says the law is not made for a righteous man, the righteous man is the believer, the Christian, those of us who are saved. And the reason the law is not made or laid against the believer, the reason for that, of course, is that we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. The whole purpose of the law is to condemn the guilty. But now that we stand righteous before God, we stand not guilty. And so the law has no power over us to condemn us. Romans 10 verse 4, we're told that Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Romans 10 and verse 4. <clears throat> Romans 10 and verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ is the end of the law. In other words, he is the fulfillment of the requirements of the law on our behalf so that it now has no power over us to condemn us. You see, this is the standing of the believer before God. If we're saved, we stand righteous before him, and therefore the law cannot condemn us. The law is not made or laid against the believer. You see, the false teachers, however, they failed to understand this truth. They failed to understand this freedom that is ours now in Christ, this freedom from the law of sin and death. Instead, they were taking the law and they were applying it to the righteous. They were laying it against the righteous, the believer. As if somehow it was the means of staying saved and it was the means of now being sanctified. You know, that by keeping the law, we become holy. We become like Christ. You know, Paul addressed a similar problem in Galatians chapter 5. Let's turn over there. Galatians 5. <clears throat> Galatians 5 and verse 1 says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Paul here speaks about how his false teachers here at Galatia who were using the law unlawfully and they were using it to bring the believers back into the bondage of the law. They were stealing the liberty, liberty that was theirs in Christ. They were putting the yoke of the law back upon them. They made the law something the believer must keep in order to remain saved or in order to be sanctified. The believer is not condemned by the law. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. 
We're not condemned by the law. The law is not laid against us. And indeed, the law has no sanctifying power either. The law cannot make us holy. And therefore, to lay the law upon believers, to lay it upon the righteous, is to use it in an unlawful way. The commentator Kent wrote this. He said, The law was not designed to form motives of integrity. Christians have something far better. The Holy Spirit who continually guides from within. Indeed, it's true. We have something far better, don't we? We have something far better than the law to guide us into righteousness. We have the Holy Spirit within, the Comforter. The Holy Spirit within now changes us little by little to be more like Christ. The Holy Spirit is working within, and that change takes place in the heart. And as that change takes place, it results in a willing, cheerful obedience to the law. Because we love God and we love our fellow man. We talked about that last time. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so it comes from the Holy Spirit changing us from within. This is how sanctification occurs, isn't it? From the inside out. Not by keeping a list of rules. It's by the Holy Spirit changing us. Sanctification is not by laying the law upon the believer. Now, the law was never intended to produce a spirit of servitude and bondage in the believer. One commentator summed it up well. He said, The main purpose of the law was not to fetter the minds of the righteous by numberless observances and minute regulations, but that it was to restrain the wicked from sin. This is the case with all law. No good man feels himself shackled by wholesome laws, nor does he feel that the purpose of the law is to reduce him to a state of servitude. Indeed, it's true. No good man feels that laws are a shackle upon him. And indeed, if we're in Christ, we shouldn't feel the law is a shackle upon us. The law was not given for the righteous. Rather, as Paul goes on now to declare, it was given to condemn the unrighteous. That was the point of the law. Romans, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 1 verse 9 there. <clears throat> verse 9 says, Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. We see Paul now goes on. And he makes clear what the lawful use of the law is. The law of God was given to condemn the unrighteous before God. And Paul lists for us here those who are condemned by the law and therefore guilty before God. And he lists uh, this order of sins, if you like. If you look at his list here, it follows the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He names those who are fragrantly violated each of those commandments. If we go over to Exodus chapter 20, we read the Ten Commandments. Let's just go and read it. I know we know them, but let's read it. Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> let's start in verse 1. Exodus 20 verse 1. <clears throat> it says, And God spake all these words, saying, 
I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and show mercy unto, them, uh, unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Exodus 20, we read the Ten Commandments. It's a familiar passage under each of us. You know, the Ten Commandments can be broken into two distinct groups or two tables. The first table is our relationship with God, verses 1 through 11. And then we have our relationship to our fellow man, verses 12 to 17. And that same grouping seems to be followed here by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. He begins by listing... Uh, sorry, with a list describing men who are set against God and set against his holy law. He starts out there in verse 9, he says, Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane. And so we have given to us, first of all, these three pairs, lawless and disobedient, ungodly and for sinners, unholy and and profane. And if we look at that list, we see that all of these are guilty according to the first four commandments. You see, the words lawless and disobedient here speak of those who despise and reject the law of God. They refuse to bring themselves under the rule of Almighty God who laid down the law. They refuse to acknowledge who God is. And then you have the words ungodly and sinners. This refers to those who refuse to worship or honor God. Instead, they worship and serve other gods, serve themselves. They live their lives as if you know, they're only to please themselves, so they live in all kinds of sin. And then finally, we have the words unholy and profane. Unholy speaking of those who have no piety, no regard for God, they're irreligious. And the word profane speaks of blasphemy. Commentator Gill writes, The profane are those who profane the name of the Lord by cursing and swearing, and who profane his day, doctrines and ordinances, and live dissolute and profane lives, being abandoned to all sin and wickedness. As we consider these three pairs, lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, we can see clearly that the law condemns them as guilty. 
before God. Those first four commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These men have violated those first four commandments. They're guilty. They're condemned by the law. And then Paul turns his attention to those who are guilty according to the second table of God's law. Again, verse 9 at the end there it says, For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul begins this second list by declaring the law is for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers for manslayers. Here we see people who are guilty according to the fifth and the sixth commandment. The fifth commandment, of course, is honor thy father and mother. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And so here he has these two groups who are guilty according to the fifth and sixth commandments. And then we read the words for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind. These words clearly speak of men who are guilty according to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now it's clear that you know, any kind of sexual immorality is considered to be against this commandment in the eyes of God. You know, whoremongers there speaks of fornication, speaks of adultery, speaks of any kind of uh, immorality. And then that defile themselves with mankind speaks of sodomites, speaks of homosexuality. And so God's word is clear that they are guilty before God. They are sinners, condemned. And then Paul continues on. He says that the law is for men stealers. You know, the eighth commandment, of course, is thou shalt not steal. And so here Paul points to the very worst of thieves, doesn't he? The very worst of thieves. These are men who steal another person for making them a slave. They steal the life. They steal the freedom of another they are the very worst of thieves. And then we read the words for liars, for perjured persons. You know, perjured persons are those who swear to tell the whole truth and then lie. Swear to, to give the truth and they lie. They bear false witness. The ninth commandment, of course, is thou shalt not bear false witness. And then finally, Paul declares, he says, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, now you'll notice that he doesn't actually mention the 10th commandment specifically here. Thou shalt not covet. Instead, Paul concludes here by declaring that all are guilty who do anything else that's contrary to God's law. Barnes writes this, The meaning is, if there is anything else that is opposed to the instruction which the law of God gives. Anything else, and that of course includes covetousness. Anything else that's against God's law. You see, this statement here at the end sums up the guilt of all men. He says, all men without Christ are guilty according to the law. But Paul's point here in this section is clear. The lawful use of the law of God is to condemn the guilty. That's the point of God's law. It's to condemn the guilty. It's to show men their guilt before a holy God. This is how we must use the law even today. We use the law of God to show men that they are sinners. To show men that they stand condemned. You know, verse 11, 
Paul concludes this section by telling us that this view is in perfect harmony with the gospel. He says in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, he says this is in perfect harmony with the gospel message. You know, the law and the gospel don't contradict each other. They go together. You know, the law gives the diagnosis. Sinner, condemned, lost on their way to hell. That's the law. The gospel provides the answer. Christ has paid the price and through him we can be righteous. You know, we see this clearly in Galatians chapter 3 where Paul declared that the law was our schoolmaster. Let's just go there as we conclude this evening. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 and verse 21 says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. The scripture hath concluded all under sin, the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. You see, Paul talks about the fact the law was given to be our schoolmaster. That's really exactly what he's talking about here in 1 Timothy. The law was given to show us our sin and bring us to Christ. To condemn us before God so we might see our need. Indeed, men must first of all see their need see that they're a sinner, see that they're guilty before God before they can ever get saved. The law first has to condemn them before Christ can save them. You know, this is the lawful use of the law. It's not made, it's not laid against the righteous. It's not laid against the believer. As he says there in Galatians, we don't need the schoolmaster. We're not under the schoolmaster. It's not laid against those of us who are saved, but rather against the unsaved to show them their sin, to show them their guilt before God. So they might be saved before it is eternally too late. You know, the law is not evil. The law is good, but it must be used lawfully. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you so much, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through simple faith in him we are declared righteous and no longer condemned by the law. Thank you so much, Lord, that we are indeed free from the law. It's a happy, wonderful condition. Lord, help us to now uh, walk each day by faith and help us, Lord, to show others their need of you. Help us to use the law in a lawful way, Lord, to point others to you. May you bless as we close now with the hymn. We pray this in Jesus' name.